0: Okay. Good to see you. God bless you. Um, We'll have a prayer. Uh, Just to mention that of course next week we have our AGM and that's followed on by the discipleship course. So this will be our last Acts class for a while and we'll just pick up again uh, in a few months when uh, Discipleship Explored is (coughs) completed. So We're in Acts 17 so if you'd like to you can grab the 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 Bible in front of you and follow along and let's have a prayer Father thank you for this time to gather together in faith with your inspired word uh, open before us and we just take this time and, and just set it apart in our hearts before you And we ask and pray that you would bless us, lead us through these verses in this chapter today. Encourage our hearts as we think about the Gospel from different angles tonight. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, bless it. Amen. Amen. Okay, we remember we are in Paul's second missionary journey. (laughs) And uh, the first one being with Barnabas and, of course, John Mark for part of the time. And this one being with Silas initially. Then they're joined by Timothy and then they're joined by Luke. So this is a second missionary journey. And we, we covered that last week looking at their, the first city in Europe being the, the capital city of that region of Macedonia, Philippi. Um, and this chapter they come to three very, very different cities, namely Thessalonica... Berea and Athens, very different. When you think about Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 11, he is kind of forced to boast a little bit and rehearse some of the things that he'd been through. Um, And in these verses, 22 to 28, he speaks about his labors more abundant, stripes above measure, imprisons frequently, Near-death experiences often. Five times he had the cat of nine tails. Three times he was beaten with rods. One times he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. One night and a day in the deep. In journeys often, as we are studying, perils of water robbers from the Jews and the Gentiles, perils in city, in wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, in weariness, in sleeplessness, in hunger and thirst, in cold and nakedness, and then he adds, and if if this wasn't enough, the daily pressures of the churches, the care of the churches, in my heart all the time. So that that's how's that for an advert for a missions trip. <laughs> <laughs> you read that, the local missions or. You know, where would you like to go? All of this, all expenses paid, and this is what you're going to experience. Quite something. Um, and of course, the wonderful courage and faith and tenacity, uh, boldness that uh, that God obviously gave uh, Paul and the, and the team is, is quite something. So in this chapter, we're going to see these very different cities. Uh, again, there's some... We always see... It always seems as though there's the response and the rejection but there's always some a remnant a group that respond and believe uh, in the gospel so uh, we remember paul and silas were in philippi they've just left there imagine that they were supernaturally uh, released from the prison they saw the wonderful conversions of the jailer and his family they baptized them in the middle of the night paul greeted the brethren Uh, having left them in a fairly good position because of his Roman citizenship and what happened to him. And now they go on to um, uh, Thessalonica. And we pick this up in the first verse. Uh, Incidentally, you'll notice it says, when they had passed, which tells us again that Luke, the author, stayed behind. When they had passed, Through and this is also the last verse in verse chapter sixteen, when they encouraged them, they departed, and when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they they came to Thessalonica. So, we remember our map here. We've come up from uh, Philippi, and now they're going down to Thessalonica, and. um, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Remember in Philippi there wasn't, which is why they went down to the river. But now there's a synagogue. And according to Paul's custom and missionary strategy, this was one of the places they they would always start. And of course Thessalonica was an incredibly influential city of the day. Um, it was uh, uh, King Cassandra of Macedonia named it after his wife, who... Um, is believed to have been the half-sister of Alexander the Great. It was a famous trade route, had a lot of traffic, three rivers uh, merging out to the sea, important uh, place. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, did I put that up there? Yeah, in verse 8, he speaks about how the gospel sounded forth from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. For your faith towards God has gone out, so we don't need to say anything. So you can see, once Paul had finished in Thessalonica, there's an incredible church that's left there, where the gospel and the word of God is sounding out, and they have an effect on the surrounding area. Um, for they themselves. And these are the people they're affecting in Macedonia. They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they turned from idols. What does that tell us? That predominantly the church in Thessalonica was a Gentile church. Not Jews, there may have been some, but mainly it was a Gentile church because Jews don't turn from idols. So they were Gentiles. He also says in Philippians 4.16, For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So when, when, uh, when Paul is in this time in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi that he's just left sent to help his knee. That's a beautiful thing. He had a wonderful relationship with that church. So they come to the synagogue. In verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's an amphitheater there in Thessalonica. Um, I went there many years ago and it's, it's what's remarkable about the city. And you'll see in the background, you've got apartment buildings, you've got all these modern blocks. And they realize that wherever they would dig, they're going to find some incredible ancient uh, building or remains, so you you often see this big office building, and right next to it, there's in, there's an incredibly uh, amazing arch, you know uh, archaeological dig that's happening. So look at that. So they came to the synagogue where Paul reasoned from them from the scriptures. Obviously, the Old Testament scriptures is all they have at the time. And the word here, reasoning, means that he was using a question and answer. A uh, conversational kind of style. He would propose something, and then with questions, uh, he would uh, allow for them uh, to 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 go back and forth. And verse three, explaining and demonstrating. These are wonderful words. Explaining is opening to to lead them to understanding, and demonstrating that means to set forth or to prove. So Paul is reasoning. He's opening. He's demonstrating bringing them to a clear understanding. And what does it say? That Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ. Now what is it saying? It's saying that from the Scriptures, Paul would reason and open and demonstrate what? That Christ, that that word means Messiah, the Messiah would have to suffer. So at this point, he's not mentioning Jesus, he's he's starting off going into the synagogue and he's saying from the scriptures, showing them that the promised Messiah of the Old Testament had to suffer. So obviously the passage, for example, in Isaiah 53 comes to mind, the suffering servant. Psalm 22, that he was pierced through his hands and his feet. And on and on, these types of passages. He was showing them from the Scriptures, their own beloved Scriptures, that the Messiah had to suffer. And once he'd shown them that, he would say, and Jesus is the one that did that. Jesus fulfilled those prophecies about the suffering Messiah in that he was pierced through his hands and his feet, etc. So that was uh, how he he, uh, approached it in the synagogue. Um, this reminds us of Luke 24. Remember, when Jesus on the, is on the road to Emmaus, he meets the two disciples, and he again opens the Scriptures to them, and the thing he asks them is he says, "All fools, slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. So that's what Jesus did also. With those. He showed them the scriptures and says, listen, didn't the scriptures say that the Messiah would suffer? Yes, they did. And that's what I had to do. That's when he was resurrected, he said that. And that's what Paul is, is uh, doing here. So, um, verse 4. What is the result? He goes in, he's reasoning, opening, proving from the Scriptures, and the result is, and some of them were persuaded. Verse 4. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So here they have some who believe, who are joining with them, who are asking and learning and growing in their faith. It's a wonderful thing. These were the God fearers. Remember, we spoke about them often. They would be found in the synagogues, Gentiles, who were seeking God and would come into the synagogues. And um, we know from the first and second Thessalonians, when he writes to this church, that much of what he was teaching during this time was about. The end times, he was teaching them about uh, persecution and tribulation, but also going looking ahead to the end times gives us an insight to what was happening uh, in these days. Now, as usual, as we've seen in the Gospels and also in Paul's first missionary journey, when you begin to see people responding to the Gospel, what else comes along? Persecution, opposition, resistance, the enemy in some form. Paul said, I have a, a wonderful, effectual door open to me, but many adversaries, 1 Corinthians sixteen nine, And that's what's happening here. So here we see the response, some are believing, and then verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, these are the Jews who were not believing, became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. And this is a, um, an excavation in Thessalonica of a marketplace, uh, would have been like this one, and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason now Jason is a character suddenly introduced in the middle of the chapter. it was obviously one of the one of the believers who had welcomed Paul and the team into his house and um, uh, poor guy not knowing what what it might mean to identify with them um, and they sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Come here from where? Come here from Philippi. The rumors and the reports from Philippi, about 100 miles away, have already got to Thessalonica. So these guys caused trouble in Philippi as well. And, uh, and here they are too. So poor Jason who feels like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll host the team. Who's coming? The apostle Paul. Sure. They can stay at my house before he knows it. He's being dragged out before the, the leaders and he's in, he's in big trouble. For verse seven, it says, Jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So what did they do? Verse 9. So when they had taken security from Jason and the others, they let them go. And it seems that this means that they took some financial security from Jason. In other words, listen, if this continues or happens again, you're going to, and we don't know what it was, lose your house or pay this fine or whatever. There was some type of bond that they made, demanding from Jason uh, that, that they should leave the city and they should never return. It's possible that when Paul later writes to Thessalonians, and he says, but we brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. It's possible he's referring to this conflict that happens here. I wanted to come back to you, but I couldn't. Perhaps this is what he's referring to. So back in 1710, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by the night to Berea. So again, if you look at the map there, you can see Berea is just a little bit further down. It's probably about 40, 50 miles away. And very different to Thessalonica, not a big uh, city on a trade route, but a very small town, obscure place. Let's just get rid of Paul. Where can we send him? Berea, let's send him there. So, when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, you'll notice here, it only mentions Paul and Silas. We know that Luke stayed in Philippi. So it seems as though, at this moment, Timothy stayed in Thessalonica. Okay, the heat is on for Paul and Silas, but listen, Timothy, there's work to be done here. These brothers, they need encouragement. You stay, and Paul and Silas uh, went on. Of course, Timothy is mentioned in both epistles to the Thessalonians, and he he was a key part of the work there. So they went to the synagogue, and of course... There, they would know they would find some who were open and ready to receive, hopefully. But also, their experience shows them that when they went to the synagogue, that was often the place where they would get trouble. Um, Yet, that's always where they went. So, verse 11, and this is a famous verse from the book of Acts These were more fair minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness. And search the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So the Bereans are contrasted to the Thessalonians. The Bereans searched the scriptures. Notice the word daily. They they had the they they had the um, character, let's say, the heart attitude where they were open to hear. And they would search the Scriptures to see if what they were hearing was true. It seems that the Thessalonians were more ready to defend themselves against the truth. But the Bereans were ready to hear the truth and and check it according to the Scriptures, taking the message back to the Bible. And that's so healthy in any church. Any church, hopefully, has a few Bereans in it who aren't just spoon-fed or aren't resisting the Word, but they're ready to hear with an open heart, but also, okay, well does the Bible really say that? Pastor, where does it say that in the Bible? They're good, healthy questions because we want to take the message back to the Bible. Uh, Jesus said in John 5.39, He said to the Pharisees, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. In other words, he's saying, search the Scriptures. If you study the Old Testament, you know what you'll find? Me. But they didn't search the Scriptures. Or not with the heart of a Berean, for sure. So, they searched the Scriptures daily, and I love this. Look at the result, verse 12. Therefore many of them believed. And I am I, a firm believer that if someone searches the Scriptures with the heart of a Berean, they will become a believer. If they're really seeking for the truth, they'll find it, for, for it's crystal clear who Jesus was, that he fulfills the prophecies, etc. Um, so, it says, "...many of them believed, also not a few of the Greeks' prominent women as well as men." so we can see a response people believing that's wonderful what normally follows on persecution opposition here we see it again verse 13 but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea they came there also and stirred up the crowds Um, Paul had a following some of which he enjoyed some of which he didn't enjoy uh, the Judaizers, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews were f- often following from city to city and, um, and causing problems. Um, similar to what we saw in the book of Nehemiah, for example. There's the work and the building and the faith and the revival and then right there is the, is the enemy standing in the shadows to discourage. So verse, uh, oh that's yeah, ruins in Berea. They come, uh, uh, did I miss that one? Yeah, uh, that's the 17. And then immediately they sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So again, they're saying, okay, Paul, time's up. It's time for you to move on again. Um, We've got some trouble here. So uh, notice it says, but both Silas and Timothy. So it seems that since Timothy was left in Berea, now Timothy catches them up. And uh, and uh, he, because he had, uh, sorry, catches them up from Thessalonica, and now they remain in Berea. More work to do. So this is the first time that we see Paul alone. It's the first time he's without a team. We see the principle of the team concept. In the Gospels, also, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, not alone. And also on Paul's missionary trips, he, he took Barnabas, he chose Silas, he, you know, and, and of course there was a team. But this is the first time he was alone. And I, I don't have it on the screen, but let me read to you from, again, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Uh, because it seems at this point, when Paul goes to Athens and Timothy and uh, Silas remain. It seems also at this point that Timothy quickly nips back to Thessalonica to see how the the church is doing there. Paul probably says, okay, you stay in Berea, and also, can you go back to Thessalonica? It's not a short trip, <laughs> but it seems that he did that. Um, most of these traveling was on foot. They could have hired horses and stuff like that, but... Um, but most of it was on foot, quite, quite long journeys. But he, it seems that he did that. And listen to this in First Thessalonians 3. When we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know we are appointed to this. What's he saying? He, he writes and he says, the reason I sent Timothy is because we know that persecution was happening. We were kicked out of Thessalonica because of it. And we know that you remained there and you were continually troubled and persecuted for your faith. And we're appointed to that in some measure as Christians. That's what he says. For in fact, we told you, verse 4, before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it has happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, unless by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. In other words, okay, we moved on to Berea, but you were in my heart and on my mind. I went on, on the ship down the coast towards Athens, and I said to Timothy, you go back because I want to see. Has the devil got in there? Are they still in the faith? Is there still a work? And verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you have always good remembrance of us, Desiring to see us, and we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you. Isn't that wonderful? Such physical troubles and affliction, yet so deeply comforted in the heart because of knowing that those Thessalonians, those Greek believers, were were still prospering in the faith. Wonderful. Um, and it seems as though Timothy went back to Thessalonica and brought this report not to Athens, but caught up with them in the next chapter, 18, in Corinth. So, verse 15. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a commandment for Silas and Timothy to come with all speed, they departed. So here they leave Berea, well, they put Paul on the ship, a couple of brothers escorting him and they come down the coast and they come to Athens, Paul in Athens. Now, let's just take a pause and remember who, who Paul is. Remember he is a Jew, um, not just a Jew, but uh, was a Pharisee, uh, trained under Gamaliel, knew the scriptures, an expert in the law. Uh, he was also a Roman. Which would have uh, availed, which would have allowed him to have learned certain skills and um, being being uh, knowledgeable in certain secular affairs of the empire and things like that. Uh, he was Greek, not by heritage, but by environment, by culture. He was raised in Tarsus, which was very Hellenistic, very influenced by Greek culture. He would have known the language, of course, etc. Exposed to Greek art and philosophy. So he kind of had a combination of a few different worlds. The Greek world, the Roman world, the Jewish world. And not only that, of course, he was a brilliant thinker, but most importantly, he was a Christian. Spirit-filled, not only a Christian, but an apostle. Anointed, one who had had incredible revelations of the gospel, and now this man stands in Athens. Paul in Athens is, is quite something, because Athens, of course was a magnificent city, but what characterized it typically, uh, especially at this point, was it was, um, it was filled with idolatry it was the, the word means overwhelmed or overrun with idols. It would have been the thing that would have stood out, certainly did to paul spiritually minded man, but Athens was a magnificent city, it was the capital of Greece. In those early centuries, particularly the 4th and the 5th century, it would have been perhaps the greatest city in the known world, Um, known for its arts, its architecture. It was like a university city for the rest of the world. Many people would have gone there to study uh, uh, philosophy and things like that. Socrates and Plato were both from Athens, and also Socrates, Plato, Aristotle adopted it as his own uh, city as well. So this was a city known for for the arts, for, the, for wisdom, Greek philosophy, um, and of course as a religious center as well, where the Greek gods and myths and uh, mythology and um, idolatry was not to be compared anywhere else. So... And uh, thousands of public statues. As you would have walked through it, you would have seen statues and idols everywhere. Temples, um, every house would have had some type of uh, uh, altar or idol at the gate or at the door. Um, It was said of Athens, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. They had a god for everything, but it was a city without god. So in verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, oh, sorry, I skipped a few pictures there. That's an artist's conception. It's based on the lay of the land that you can see today up on the hillside, the Areopagus up here and the lower level. And, of course, a lot of this is built on now, but there are incredible excavations, and they, this is what they can uh, can can rebuild. You can see all of these types of statues and uh, everywhere This is what Paul would have been walking through. So, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them, notice this. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. A little bit later in the message, you see that he says, as I walked through your city and considered your idols. And that struck me this afternoon that as Paul, a little bit like Nehemiah riding around the wall, nobody knowing who this man was, like Paul, walking through Athens, and he's looking at the idols, and he's considering, and God is perhaps instructing his heart, and it begins to stir his heart. The word here is provoked or irritated. He was provoked by it. It's a wonderful verse provoked within him, his spirit was provoked when he saw the city given over to idols. And although it was an incredibly impressive city, I mean, if you wanted to go in in that day and be awed, have such wonder of, of the architecture and how impressive it was, wow, Athens. But Paul saw kind of beyond all of that grandeur, all of the surface, he saw the real core needs and issues, that people were lost, that people needed God, that people were caught up in idolatry and, and Greek mythology and these types of things. And he, he was burdened by that. It says he was provoked in his heart. That's a wonderful, wonderful word. And of course, he was provoked because He saw the idols. Now, perhaps when we think of idols, we we think back of ancient Greece, or we think back of, of Hinduism in India, or we think about these things. But of course, the Western society, they may not be carved images out of stone or gold or wood, but our culture is filled with idolatry. For idolatry is anything that would take the place of God in someone's life. So so we can we can share the same type of burden as Christians when we look in, in our modern sophisticated technological culture we can be so burdened as Christians because we see that the whole culture is filled with idolatry and yet man is in such need of God. So Paul is stirred up so what did he do verse 17 and we read the word therefore right, it's connected Because he saw the city filled with idolatry, because he was so moved and provoked, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshippers. These are the God-fearers, the Gentiles. And in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So on the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue and he would reason with the Jews and any Gentile God-fearers that were there. And then during the day, he would go down to the marketplace and he would speak with those who happened to be there. Or we could say, as God would give him divine appointment, you know, he would be prayerfully connecting with people and speaking to whoever would listen. And then in verse 18, And then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? And the word here for babbler is a seed picker. The, these uh, you know, knowledgeable philosophers would look at someone like Paul with some newfangled theory and say, oh, he's just a seed picker. He gets a bit from here and a bit from here and a bit from here and he's coming up with a new idea. Who is this babbler? That's the word they use for him. And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So there it tells us again what Paul was preaching about, the heart of the gospel, the death and the resurrection. The Epicureans, Epicurus being the founder, 341 BC, materialistic atheists, they denied the afterlife, uh, they promoted self-gratification and pleasure being the chief thing in life. Eat, drink and be merry. That's the goal of life. The Stoics on the other hand, Zeno was the founder, these were would come across a little bit more noble, a little bit more kind of humanitarian, you could say, in a sense of they were the nice guys. They, they, they looked for self-mastery. If you can control and master yourself, um, they believed they were pantheists. They believed, in fact, that everything was God. So you have two very differing philosophers, groups of philosophers, come over and speak to Paul. And verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, um, this, this uh, in it, it, the literal meaning of the Areopagus is the hill of Ares. In, in Latin, Ares is Mars. So this is also called Mars Hill. But the Areopagus is not a place, it's not the hill as much as it was the It was the court and what was was actually in the place. The Areopagus was the the Athenian court, kind of like the Supreme Court, although Paul wasn't necessarily taken there under an official trial as much as they wanted to hear about what new theory was being uh, presented. So they took him to the Areopagus. Now, this was a place where there were 70 men. Is it 70? Um, Let me just see. Sorry, 30 men. I'm thinking of the Sanhedrin. 30 men. Um, and these would have been the, the, the great thinkers and leaders and most powerful men in Athens on their effective court on the Areopagus. And this is who he was to stand before. They brought him there saying, May we know what this new doctrine is and which of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And of course, this was music to Paul's ears, right? Oh, someone wants to know, I'll tell them. How much time you got? Take a seat. I could talk all day about it. And then, and then the in our commentary here, it's thrown in verse 21. For the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. You want to hear some new thing? Okay. I'll be honoured. So, in this wonderful message that follows, it's a famous message because it demonstrates wonderful adaptation of the message. Paul being very tuned into his audience. These were not Jews that he was going to speak to. These were Gentiles. They had no knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. So he comes to it from a very, very different, um, different place. He wanted to relate to them. He would be a Jew to the Jew and a philosopher to the philosophers, whatever was needed to bring them to the gospel. Verse 22, And then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, as has been mentioned, there were 12 main deities that could have been recognized, but thousands of others, thousands of other idols and gods that were mentioned. And there was, they were so superstitious and careful in their superstition that they even had uh, altars to the unknown god. He wouldn't want to miss one. Perhaps there's one we've missed. So there's one that we will. There's certain ignorance attached to it. But we'll just say to the unknown God, and we'll 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 make offerings, etc., to to honor honor him. So as Paul was walking around, he's looking at the different idols and statues. He comes across this altar of the unknown God, and 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 God begins to instruct his heart. And this is what he brings out in the message. This is what he makes reference to. And it's it's wonderful. It's genius. He says, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Isn't amazing. So as I was walking around your city, I saw all the idols, I saw an altar to the unknown God, and he's the one I want to tell you about, the God that you don't know, and yet he is knowable, and you can know him, and let me tell you about him. So I think he has a he has an audience now. The unknown God, are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to share it to you. Um, Verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, the first point he makes is God, the unknown God, or he's presenting the true God, is the creator of all. That's the first thing. And then he mentions that he is Lord of heaven and earth. That's the second thing. And then he says he does not dwell in temples made with hands. So that he is transcendent. So he appeals to them. He begins to appeal to them on the basis of... Oh, that's by the way, um, you can see this in, in Athens and in these places in museums. You can see an altar to the unknown God. He begins to appeal to them, not on the on the grounds of what we call special or specific revelation, but on the basis of general revelation. Now, general revelation just means that through, through the order and the testimony of creation, you come to the conclusion that there's a creator. Based on design, there's a designer. That's the, the, the reasoning there. Paul uses it in Romans 1, that through the invisible... Through the visible creation, the invisible God is clearly seen, right? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? So that's general revelation. He doesn't come to them on the basis of the scripture, but on the basis of, of, of uh, God being a creator. So he says, God is creator, Lord of heaven and earth, and he's transcendent. Verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So now he shows that God is not needing anything from us or from them, that you would somehow bring an offering or an altar or something, a concept that God is the receiver and somehow you give to him. And that's a common concept that people have today. They make God the receiver and we're the giver. All of religion is based on that in some measure. But the gospel, of course, is that God is the giver. We are the receiver. And that's kind of what he's alluding to here, that God is a giving God. He is the sustainer. He gives life and breath. And what's the other thing? Life, breath, and all things. Verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, now he goes from creation, the Creator, the Lord, and now he says, who designed all things, you can't confine him in a temple, he doesn't need anything from you, and by the way, he made us. He made all men. Verse 27, and why did he make men? Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What a graphic picture there. That man is groping and seeking and looking for God, who is so close. That's what Paul says. And in this verse he's saying, this is, there, is, there is one true God who created all things, and he even made us. And he made us that we would seek him and find him and know him. Personally, so here he is saying that God is knowable, and He's not far from any of us. From any of us, not distant, not from the from the Jew or the Gentile or the Greek or the barbarian. But He is very close, and to emphasize this point, verse twenty-eight, he he quotes uh, a couple of the the Greek philosophical poets and he weaves it into the message for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said and here you can see paul using some of his his um well his knowledgeable well-traveled experience uh to to bring out these greek philosophical secular poets who And of course, in the context, they're talking about Zeus. And many people have said, why, why is Paul, they're talking about Zeus, why does Paul bring that poetry in here? But he's making the, he's making the fact, he's making the point that even your own poets realized um, that God, uh, what was he saying? That God was, was knowable, transcendent. And we are very close to us. So close that in him we actually live and move and have our being. And then he says, and this is a different poet, for we are also his offspring. So two different poets. And in biblical language we would say we were made in his image. It's kind of what he's saying. We are his offspring. We are made by God. So now he's, so he says, God is creator, he's Lord, he's transcendent, he's the sustainer, he's the giver of life. He made men that we might know him, and then he says he is imminent. In other words, he is very close, he is not far off from any, any of us. Verse 29, therefore, so now he's going to make a conclusion about God. Since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So he basically paints God with these wonderful brushstrokes and presents God as the creator, the Lord, the sustainer of life. And then he says, is really, are we thinking that, he brings it right back to a little stone idol, are we really saying that this is the same thing? No, God is, God is not like this. He says, we are not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something made by our own hands. In other words, if, God, if we are God's created beings, which is what he's just said in the previous verses, then God must be more than something that we have created. If we are created by God, then how can God be something created by us? That's what he's saying. Are we created in his image, or do we create God in our image? God is not made of stone or gold. Can we honestly go to a tree and cut it down and carve a face out of it and then say, this is our God? So truly, verse 30, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And the word repent means to change your mind. So it's interesting in this phrase. He calls this height of um, philosophical, (laughs) you know, this philosophical height in Greece, he calls it a time of ignorance with all of their wisdom and Socrates and all of the rest, all they got, he says, this is a time of ignorance. Okay, but that's over. Now we've got light. Now you've got clear understanding. And he's going to bring it right to the point now. Um, Verse, uh, he moves from this generic sense of gods and idolatry. He brings them to be accountable to a living, personal God. Not, not, he takes them from an, from an altar saying to the unknown God and he now brings them right to, to, the, to the foot of the cross essentially he brings them right to the gospel verse 31 because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Boom. There's, there's the punch. He said all that to say this. There is a man appointed to be judge. And it, he was approved as judge by the fact that God raised him from the dead. And of course, um, he's saying the proof of his approval was in the resurrection. Verse 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. While others said, We will hear you again on this matter, as they stroked their beard. (laughs) We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, last verse, However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And we notice these three responses to the Gospel. Some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again. However, some believed. And perhaps that can be our expectation today as well. Some are going to mock it. Some will reject it. Others will say, oh, I'll come again. That was interesting. But others will believe. Some will believe. And that's our uh, our joy when that happens. And they join. It says that they uh, joined with him and believed. That, that, that's the imagery there of, of being a disciple, continuing and being taught. Uh, sadly, though, we don't read of a church in Athens. We don't read Paul and Timothy and Silas to the church in Athens. There were some believers, some disciples, some that perhaps connected uh, with the Christian faith in other cities, but uh, we've no history of that. Okay, thank you, Lord. Thank you ton- for tonight and for this time we could all consider these verses and consider the Gospel. And, and uh, we, we just pray that you would give us a sensitivity like this as we speak to different people in different places in their life, in their thinking, in their philosophies of life, and their worldview. Oh, God, teach us and help us uh, to cross those those, uh, cultural barriers within our own land and uh, just help with the misconceptions that many people have and to share the gospel, we pray. And uh, bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.